Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to another episode of the Fuel Better podcast. I am your host, as always, Evan Lynch. We have an interesting episode today, one which I'm sure many of you are going to really personally relate to. We're going to talk about bone health and bone injuries in athletes. We're going to go through the how and the why of, you know, why they occur in the first place. I'll talk about some dietary behaviors, patterns, tactics you can do or not do that will decrease or increase your risk of having a bone stress injury or stress response. And then if you are in the unfortunate situation that you do have a bone stress injury, I'll walk you through the ins and outs of what you would probably need to do about that. So people don't necessarily think about their bones, definitely not young athletes. They don't ever think about bones and bones are very, very interesting. They they constantly remodel and you have a constant bone turnover. So your your bones are constantly changing. So by the, by the time you reach your 20s, let's say late teens, early 20s, you have 90% of your peak bone mineral density or peak bone mass. You, you reach 100% of that around the age of 29, 30. So you have your highest bone mineral density when you're in your late 20s or you're around the age of 30. So that's important for reasons I'll describe later. Generally speaking, from personal experience and professional experience, Teenagers definitely don't manage their diet with bone health in mind. And that's very unfortunate. Take a take, let's say, a hypothetical case where you have a budding endurance athlete and they don't eat dairy, maybe for personal reasons, digestive reasons, ethical reasons, whatever it might be. They're not getting a lot of dietary calcium. They don't really reach or ever attain a high level of peak bone mass. They try to do marathon running as someone in their 30s, late 30s. They get stress fractures, metatarsal fractures, and they can say good luck and thanks to their career. That's obviously a very hypothetical, drawn out example, but not exactly an uncommon occurrence. I see a lot of people coming into my clinic, both in person and virtually, who have stress fractures, who have a history of fractures, or they have low bone mineral density, and they're just worried that, you know, one day they're going to put their foot down and crack. That is their season over. So I'm going to rewind for a second. I realize I just kind of got off on a bit of a tangent there, as often happens when I start talking about these things. Bones are pretty important. Most people assume they're just there, much like a clothes hanger, to put shape and structure on something. But your, your bones aren't just structural they actually do quite a lot of things. Primarily in your bone marrow, that's where you make red blood cells and white blood cells. So immunity and iron metabolism are closely linked to bone health. Decreases in bone mineral density, you do often see people who have iron deficiency or maybe immunosuppression or low white blood cell counts. 
in the female athlete triad, iron deficiency and low bone mineral density were often seen in uh, kind of close links or they're often seen in tandem. And part of that reds picture or underfueling picture for athletes, you would expect a lower than normal or lower than expected bone mineral density. And you often see those those extra items noted like the iron deficiency and the low white blood cell counts. So bones don't just sit there. They're not just for structure. They are quite important. Interesting note here. As an athlete, you should have a much higher bone mineral density than, say, a non-athlete. And this is due to something called the mechanostat theory. Think of it as adaption. Let's say if you're a gymnast or you're a trampoline artist or you're a runner, you put lots of pressure and stress on those bones and that sparks off something called an osteogenic response. So think of it like muscles, use it or lose it. As athletes, if you do a weight-bearing sport, such as weights itself, basketball, gymnastics, anything with explosive power or pressure through your lower limbs, you are going to have a much higher than expected bone mineral density. So that's, that's really, really important. Side note to this, if you're a cyclist or if you're a swimmer or if you do a sport that's non-weight-bearing, you can expect to have a lower bone mineral density for that exact reason. You never put those forces through your bones. They never they never experience that level of mechanical loading or stress. You do not get that same level of osteogenic activity. So that's quite important to note. So whilst I've just acknowledged that, let's say a runner, someone who clearly puts six times their weight onto their front leg every time they take a step, you could say, well, a runner should have high bone mineral density. But here's the catch. Distance runners, cross-country runners, high-level athletes, particularly of the endurance nature, and triathletes actually, frequently display lower than expected levels of bone mineral density. So they'd have a Z-score oftentimes of minus one or less on their lumbar spine, which is a big problem. A Z-score basically, it compares your bone mineral density to other people who are the same gender and age as you. So if we're on one hand saying, well, you know, sports, mechanical loading, tension, that should really typically result in an athlete having good bone mineral density. But then in reality, we see all of these athletes who do loading sports have really poor levels of bone mineral density. Well, what's going on? And this is why I'm talking about this topic today. Diet has a huge role to play in the pathogenesis of low bone mineral density. And in turn, if you get your diet on point, it can seriously protect you from having decreases, unnecessary decreases in bone mineral density. If you're not convinced as to why this is important, I'm going to share with you a horrifying statistic that I heard a researcher say before. So if you have osteoporosis, which is measured as a T-score of minus 2.5 or less. And a T-score, basically, that's how does your bone mineral density compare to a young, healthy person. So that's that's how they, they measure that. They use T-scores. So T-scores and Z-scores, kind of the same thing, slightly different. Anyways, if you find yourself in the unfortunate scenario where you have osteoporosis or a very low bone mineral density, effectively weakened, fragile bones that are on the precipice of breaking and you fall and break your hip 
And as a direct result of that, you are four times more likely to die. I'm going to repeat that. If you have osteoporosis and you fall and break your hip, you're four times more likely to die approximately. It's not because you die from breaking your hip. It's because if your bones are at that level of fragility and you then get an injury that has you sidelined or seriously takes away your ability to mobilize and be independent, your quality of life goes down the swanee. Your ability to do your daily activities, it's, it's seriously impeded. The impact on your mental health alone is pretty severe. So it's really important. The ability to move freely, exercise pain-free is something lots of people take for granted until they can't do it. So that's quite important. Your bones really matter. So with that in mind, assuming you are someone who is either physically active, you're a nutritionist, you're a dietitian, you're someone who just doesn't want to have low bone mineral density, what can we do about that? So the first thing we need to look at if we're trying to help someone avoid the issue of having low bone mineral density, a stress response or a stress fracture, we need to consider their total calorie intake. And I mentioned earlier on that there was a bit of a disconnect between, well, mechanistically sports should increase bone mineral density, but we see athletes who have low bone mineral density. The thing that links those two observations together is that they come from lean type sports where being lean is championed and where underfueling and eating disorders are rampant. And that's where low energy availability comes in. Athletes will either purposely or inadvertently reduce their calorie intake purposely because they believe, well, I must be lean to be a good performer or inadvertently think Michael Phelps 10,000 calories a day, very easy not to eat 10,000 calories a day. It's actually very hard to do that. So that can be inadvertent. Maybe someone doesn't know how much they need or they're simply trying their best to eat that much thinking they're hitting the mark. You end up in the same place either way, low energy availability. I'll explain energy availability very quickly because it's not the topic of today's conversation. But effectively, if you want a, an idea of what energy availability is, think of it like this. The amount you eat minus training costs whatever is left is your energy availability. So calories eaten minus calories burned in training, that's energy availability. That number needs to be bigger than your biological requirements for supporting basic functions or you're going to run into a whole boatload of problems. Luckily, there's actually a way we can quantify this. If you're a lady, you want to be eating 45 calories per kg of fat-free mass. And if you're a man, you want to eat about 30 calories per kg of fat-free mass. There's a bit of a difference in energy availability cutoff points for men and women. The difference being, simply put, the energy cost of a reproductive system. A whole womb, uterus is way more costly to run than a pair of balls. That's purely the only difference. The ESB bill for ladies is a little bit higher. It's approximately 15 calories per kg of fat-free mass higher, if you ever wanted to try and quantify that. So if we're trying to, you know, you're, you're trying to get that kg of fat-free mass value, you just need to know your body fat percentage. Simply put, pretend I'm 100 kilos. I'm not 100 kilos. But pretend I was, and let's say I'm 20% body fat. That means I'm 80% not body fat, or I'm 80 kilos of fat-free mass. 
So for a man who's 80 kilos of fat-free mass, the energy availability cutoff point is about 2,400 calories. For a lady, that would be about 3,600 calories. So significantly higher. So that's, that's important to bear in mind. So with that very brief description out of the way and the acknowledgement that the, the first thing we need to bear in mind is that if an athlete is experiencing low energy availability or if the calories from their diet after we factor in training costs are less than the calorie cost of supporting basic biological functioning, generally we see decreases in bone mineral density there. And there's a couple of reasons for that. There's a couple of things that change in someone's body when they're in when they're experiencing low energy availability. Firstly, when you're in that constant energy deprivation, you get a downregulation of your hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. For men, that means lower testosterone. For women, that means lower estrogen. Both low testosterone and low estrogen levels are associated with increased rates of bone demineralization. So you'll see an increase in osteocalcin levels and you'll see unfavorable changes to bone turnover markers. So that's number one. Second to that, you get a decrease in anabolic responses in general. So you have lower levels of fasting insulin and you have less secretions of insulin like growth factor one. So that has a that has an anabolic effect, I should say, on bone health and, and bone production. So if you get less of that, you get less bone building. You're more prone to demineralization. So that's really important. Another observation, this is more so an observation. You do see people who are in a case of low energy availability have low leptin levels. So leptin is your satiety hormone. High leptin means you're full. Low leptin means you're hungry. People in reds have generally lower levels of leptin and that's associated possibly not causal it's associated with lower bone mineral density levels so that's that's quite important so that that energy mismatch whether purposeful or not is one of the key drivers for low bone mineral density and stress fractures so that's that's quite important secondary to that you know we need to we need to be a bit more specific. Obviously, we want athletes to eat enough, but we also care about the pattern of eating. Okay, so the pattern matters. And there is research to suggest that, let's say you meet your requirements, but you 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 think it's still 2017 and you decide to do it in one huge meal a day. I don't know if anyone else remembers that YouTube ad. I don't know, do you remember that YouTube ad, Dan, the, the guy who used to eat one big meal a day and he used to be delighted about it? I guarantee you that fella does not have brilliant bone mineral density. Long gaps without food bump up cortisol levels and it is associated with all of the parameters of reds, low testosterone, lower insulin levels, lower estrogen levels. It's going to have that knock-on impact. So you don't only want to eat enough, but you want to eat frequently. Three to four hours is a pretty good measure to go with. And let's get further granular still. Carbs are very, very important. There's actually a very specific number in mind here, and I did read this in a paper. For female athletes, I'm going to assume it applies equally. And what it showed was if athletes had a glycogen availability, so we talked about energy availability, glycogen availability very loosely is your carb intake minus the carb cost of training 
and whatever is left is your glycogen availability. If that number is less than 130, if you have less than 130 grams of carbohydrates per day to support and promote basal metabolic functioning, that's going to increase osteoclastic activity. Osteoclasts break down bone, osteoblasts make bone. So that's really important. Further still, point of note, if you are an athlete, low carbohydrate technically is less than 150 grams a day. And it reflects that fact that I just mentioned there. So if you're an athlete, low carb for you is relative to your energy requirements. Bear in mind on food labels and packages, those nutrition guidelines are typically in the context of someone who burns 2000 calories a day. I work with some athletes who probably burn 2000 calories while they make a shite. Well, that's not strictly true, but I'm, I'm exaggerating for illustrative purposes, but you get my point. So energy, frequent eating, enough carbs. That's the, that's the first couple of considerations we have to put in there to make sure that your bone mineral density is not absolutely shot to death. Some other things that we might want to bear in mind. Let's say if we have someone who is plant-based or they might have watched the Game Changers documentary or any of those generally anti-dairy, anti-whatever macronutrient or food group insert here documentaries, if you have someone who has a chronically low calcium intake, so that's that's something that I do see quite a lot. And calcium requirements are generally between 700 and 1000 milligrams a day for, for people. If you have an active stress fracture, osteoporosis, osteopenia, that can be anywhere from 1200 to 1500 milligrams of calcium per day. That's about 1.2 liters of milk. 1500 milligrams is 1.2 liters of fortified milk, roughly speaking. That's a lot of dairy. Most people grossly undershoot that. If you have a chronic low intake of calcium as part of your day-to-day -day diet, if you don't eat your dairy and maybe you don't, you don't swap dairy for soya, which is your gold standard source, and you go for almond milk or oat milk or whatever it might be because you think you're cool and hip, you're missing key calcium there. Other calcium sources, if you're trying to put this information into action, would be things like spinach, leafy greens, kale, weirdly enough, sesame seeds, tofu, orange juice, multivitamins, kids, cereals. They're all very, very good sources of calcium. So that's the number one thing that you need to do from a micronutrient perspective. You need to get enough calcium in. If you've developed a stress fracture, you are going to want to really rank up your calcium intake to promote healing there. And that's that's going to be the one of the main predictors as to whether or not you actually get healing of that bone or not. And it's one of the main predictors in whether you reach reasonably decent levels of peak bone mineral density or not. One of the things that happens if your calcium intake isn't high enough and, you know, if you're curious about health, maybe you've asked for blood panels before, or maybe you have osteopenia or osteoporosis and you're saying, well, when I look at my bloods, my calcium level is fine. Calcium in your blood is 1% of the calcium in your body. The other 99% almost is in your bones. So the, the number you see, it's kind of a front. If your calcium intake is low, 
what will happen is your parathyroid hormone levels will skyrocket and that will cause you to leach calcium for your bones to keep that calcium level steady. So calcium homeostasis in the blood is key. If you don't get enough from your diet, you borrow from your bones. That's effectively the, the premise of what we're talking about here. If you're lucky enough to be a teenager, early 20s, late 20s, you can possibly undo some of this. You can remodel and improve bone mineral density and health and bone mass up to the age of 30. After that, it's just a downward spiral or maintenance at best. So that's really important. So this is one of the reasons why I get irritated by people who scaremonger about dairy because it's not it's not automatically a bad thing for you unless you have a cow's milk protein allergy or you're lactose intolerant. That would be pretty much the only reason why you would not purposely include dairy in your diet. Everything else for the most part is either very loose correlation, conjecture, or just incorrect. So be very careful about where you get your nutritional information from. So that's that's calcium. That's that's quite an important item there. And I think, you know, people tend to be aware that calcium is pretty important for, for bone health, but perhaps not aware of the amount that's often required to ensure bone health is in check. Second to calcium is vitamin D. So the FSAI have recently released guidelines there and supplementation varies from 5 micrograms to 15 micrograms per day, depending on your age. However, there is some research there done specifically on athletes, and it does recommend that athletes get anywhere from 1500 to 2000 IUs of vitamin D per day to support bone density and overall health. Furthermore, vitamin D deficiency is commonly seen in in athletes who are at risk of underfueling, so those those jockeys, those distance runners, those cyclists, ballet dancers, physique sports tend to display with vitamin D deficiency because if your diet is low in calories or purely inadequate, you also don't get enough of anything else, vitamin D, calcium, magnesium, etc. So low calories, low everything. It's, it's really uh, as simple as that. Basically, the role of vitamin D, it helps you to absorb calcium and phosphorus into your intestinal tract, and that that enhances your capacity to maintain calcium homeostasis and prevent you borrowing from your bones, which is very important. So of note, if you're doing blood tests, your doc tells you, yeah, look, your your grand, your vitamin D is grand. It might be helpful to take a look at that and see where your vitamin D levels are at. Vitamin D cutoff points for athletes would be 75 nanomoles per litre versus 50 for normal populations. So it's very important to be aware of that, okay? So I, I briefly mentioned phosphorus there. So if, if your phosphorus intake is low, you find phosphorus in pretty much all foods that are high in protein, dairy included. If you don't have enough phosphorus or phosphate in your diet, that can impair bone mineralization. So it's just important that you're you're getting a variety of protein sources in your diet and you're getting adequate vitamin D, adequate calcium. Those three items, phosphorus, calcium, vitamin D, they go a long way in managing and regulating parathyroid hormone. So the, the parathyroid glands, their only function is to release parathyroid hormone. The only function of parathyroid hormone is to keep calcium homeostasis steady. The only time there'd be an issue with your parathyroid hormone is if your calcium intake is far too low or if you have a tumor on your parathyroid gland 
or sometimes you can get something called secondary hyperparathyroidism from chronic kidney disease or kidney failure. But I'm not going to get into all of that. That's far outside the scope of today's talk, just for the for the context of athletes, low calcium, low vitamin D, and a high phosphorus intake combined with a low calcium intake, you're going to see big shot in parathyroid hormone and maybe you don't necessarily feel it, but your bones wither away over time. So that's quite important. There are some other micronutrients that are linked and relevant for bone mineral density. Magnesium is another one. So again, you know, you might do blood tests and your magnesium levels are absolutely fine. And it's again, it's like a front. Magnesium is not mostly found in your blood. It's mostly found in other parts of your body with the majority of it stored in your bones. So you can have a subclinical magnesium deficiency. And what that means is you do a blood test, your levels are fine. Serum magnesium is fine. It doesn't necessarily infer as to your overall magnesium intake output versus input lower or subclinical magnesium deficiencies can impair bone mineral density and it can have a knock-on effect on vitamin D and calcium metabolism. So generally supplementation between two and 300 milligrams a day if you have low bone mineral density, osteopenia or osteoporosis, it wouldn't be a bad idea and it's important to be aware that the supplement can be had <clears throat> It's important to be aware that you can take a magnesium supplement in conjunction with a high magnesium diet. So the magnesium requirements in men and women differ. For men, it's approximately 400 milligrams a day. For ladies, it's approximately 300 milligrams per day. Depending on the source you look at, that does vary. It's important to note that the magnesium content in food isn't considered to be additive if you have a magnesium supplement. So you can, you can take your supplement and have a high magnesium diet. So magnesium, loosely speaking, is generally found in foods that are high in fiber, dark chocolate, leafy grains, beans, whole grains. Generally, that will that will get you your uh, magnesium requirements for the day. So if you're if you're someone who may be at risk of low bone mineral density, you might want to consider a magnesium supplement. Other micronutrients that play roles here, notably, you're looking at copper, manganese, B vitamins and vitamin C. Those all influence the function and synthesis of collagen. So bone is primarily comprised of hydroxyapatite and collagen. That's the whole matrix there. So anything that can contribute to collagen synthesis is generally considered to be important in bone remodeling and repair. More so deficiencies in copper, manganese, B vitamins, vitamin C, they're likely to lead to unfavorable changes in bone density. I'm not exactly convinced that supplementing with high doses of these things will make your bones bulletproof. That's not the case. So the last micronutrient I'm going to talk about in its role in bone metabolism is vitamin K2. So basically what vitamin K2 does is it alters the function of something called GLA proteins, GLA proteins, and that alters the function of something called osteocalcin. So if you have high levels of osteocalcin, it means your bones are turning over rapidly. High osteocalcin means your bones are aging quicker than you are. They're, they're living in a different universe that the clock is ticking quicker. And if you don't have enough vitamin K in your diet, 
that can dramatically increase that kind of uh, bone turnover rate. Important point of note, not strictly related to bone mineral density, but it is related to the treatment of osteopenia, osteoporosis. When we when we give people very high intakes of calcium, one of the potential side effects of that is arterial calcification and kidney stones. The The most worrisome item there is calcification of arteries or stiffening of arteries, that arterial arteriosclerosis, I should say. Vitamin K supplementation can prevent and even reduce or reverse that. So if you're on high intakes of calcium, it's very important that you're also supplementing with 150 to 180 micrograms of vitamin K to prevent such um, negative processes from occurring or proliferating. So that's in summation how diet is going to impact your bone health and your bone mineral density. In short, you want to eat enough, eat often, not avoid carbs. You want to get enough calcium and enough depends on what's going on with you, whether you're normal, whether you're pregnant, whether you're a teenager or older age or middle-aged, whether you're osteopenic or osteoporotic, your calcium will be somewhere between 700 and 1500 milligrams per day. So you need to know where you're at in that, in that framework. Get your vitamin D levels checked. You need to be above 75 nanomoles per liter. And for athletes, as I said, higher levels than generally advised are often required. And it's important to note that general guidelines rarely apply to athletes or people who are physically active because they just simply cannot take into account the sheer magnitude of energy output and the, the raw materials required to fuel Ironman training, marathon training, being an Olympian or playing soccer at a reasonably high level. Those don't come for free. There's a cost to everything is what I'm trying to say. So you need to get that squared away as well. The rest of the points can be ticked off by having a well-balanced diet, including some dairy or soya, including plenty of variety with high fiber foods, plants, vegetables, fruit, etc. You need to do that and you need to make that a priority. So if, if you've been unlucky enough to be landed with an injury, you need to really take this stuff on board. There are some additional things you would look to employ if you're injured. Generally speaking, it's advisable that you're resting for two to six weeks. If you have a stress fracture, you're going to need to see a physio about that. Or if, you're, if you have some bone pain or pain that's kind of unrelenting, speak to a physio, perhaps get an MRI, perhaps get a DEXA scan. If you're someone who is under fueling, you're doing one of those um, high energy output sports or you have a history of eating disorders or you've lost your menstrual cycle or you're a male athlete with libido problems, getting a DEXA scan might not be a terrible idea to see where you're at. Diagnostically, it's important to get that DEXA, get that MRI to see, do you have low bone mineral density? Are you osteopenic? Are you osteoporotic? Is there a fracture? Is there a big break in that bone there? You need to know that. If there is, you're looking at rest for a couple of weeks and rehab. Generally, from what I see with patients and clients, it's a four to six month window from injury to back in training at a reasonable level and some some just summation things from from what i already described you need to eat enough and if you're injured you add about 10 percent. so weight loss and injuries don't go well together 
if you're someone who is looking at improving your body composition, you really need to deprioritize that or shelf that for a while if you have an injury. And the easiest way to think about it is, you know, I've given you tips and tools here that would help you rebuild your bone or repair your bone, but that doesn't come for free. There's extra budget required there from an energy perspective if you want to actually rebuild that properly. So you don't want to also be losing weight or trying to lose weight. So figure out your calorie requirements and add 10%, at least in the acute phase of your injury. And there is some research to suggest that a collagen supplement will be beneficial if you have a connective tissue or bone stress injury. Generally, we recommend supplementation in the range of 10 to 20 grams of bovine collagen, Kinetica and MyProtein, and I think bulk powders do pretty pretty useful supplements in that respect. So that's that's something that can be done and it may improve your recovery. It'll definitely enhance that collagen resynthesis. So that's that's something of note. For non-athletes, protein requirements in osteopenia and osteoporosis are about 1 to 1.2 grams per kg body weight per day. In athletes, if you're injured, it's advisable to go as high as 2.4 grams per kg body weight per day. That would be my go-to value. And if you're a clinician or you're a nutritionist or a dietitian, you may be thinking, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. Don't high-protein diets encourage calcium excretion in your urine? Yes, they do. The research that exists, it doesn't appear to show that high-protein diets, when someone consumes enough calcium, is in any way del- deleterious or negative for bone mineral density. So in, in summation, 2.4 grams per kg of body weight and adequate calcium that's necessary for injury recovery and repair. And depending on your sport, depending on the location of your bone stress injury, if that's what you have, if you're incapacitated or your mobility is hampered, it is really important that that protein intake is high. And perhaps you want to try something like creatine monohydrate, three to five grams a day, and possibly hydroxymethylbutyrate, your HMB, one to three grams a day. Those items are anti-catabolic. So whilst you're injured now and your concern is your bone, think six months time. If you have one leg that you have resting or it's on a crutch or it's in a boot, the muscles there are atrophying. The muscle quality is decreasing. There's less muscle mass there. That can result in imbalances and gait issues, even coordination issues, loss in power. Particularly imagine if you're a cyclist and one leg is half as strong as the other you're definitely going to get issues along the chain up upper body and it might uh, it might make it difficult for you to get back into play again. So that's, it's a key preventative thing we do there. We prevent muscle losses as much as possible. So the high protein and those two supplements are very helpful in, in that context. Okay, so guys, t- to be honest, I have more or less said all of the things that I needed to say today. And I've... If I've done my job right, and I I hope I have, you will have an appreciation as to how and why bone health is important, where bones sit in the context of, of you, your health, your longevity as an athlete, how your diet can impact bone health. And if you do have some issues with your bone health or you have a stress injury, how you might go about that from a dietary point of view, I would encourage you, if you're worried that you underfuel or you have REDS, or you've any of the symptoms of REDS, the libido problems, loss of menstrual function, training is getting really hard, you're constantly getting sick or you're iron deficient, or if you have 
any of these injuries, I would encourage you to reach out to a sports dietitian or, or someone, someone like myself to get some advice and assistance on that. It's important that you do this right, particularly if you have aspirations of a, a long, fruitful career as an athlete of any level. This is something that will totally ruin your day if you don't take care of it. So take note. I hope you found this episode interesting, informative and helpful. If you have a friend or a colleague or a clubmate who you know has a stress fracture or they have a tendency towards bone injuries, or if you have a family member who has osteopenia or osteoporosis, perhaps share this episode with them. This can be very vital and useful information. And sometimes I take it for granted. This is what I do. It's what I talk about all day, every day. I am aware that this is not democratized knowledge. So help me share it and we can make the world maybe a slightly better place. Okay, guys, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> <laughs> 